Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. All right, welcome to Godsplaining. My name is Father Bonaventure, and I'm joined by Father Gregory Pine, who is at least five feet away from me. Father Gregory, I'm in Washington, D.C. Are you more than five feet away from me? I am more than five feet away from you. I actually looked up the distance from Washington, D.C. to Switzerland recently. It's something, I think it's like 4,500 miles, if I'm not mistaken. Whenever someone says, if I'm not mistaken, that means that they're pretty confident. But in this case, I'm not confident because I just don't remember. But yeah, I'm a few feet away from you. The neat part about that, I don't know if, did, if you did it in Google, you can then toggle like which mode of transport. And you might be able to, so two things about that for you is you might have the boat option, which I have never yeah. used. Um, right. But secondly, you could toggle that to walk and then see how it calculates water walking. That, like how yeah, many days, point. how many days slash years, maybe, I don't know, how long would it take to walk from Switzerland to Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I, um, so what we say, 4,500 miles. The community yeah. of Santiago is like 500 miles and people take like a month to do that. So let's say that it'd take me um, nine months of continuous walking on flat Spanish earth. Um, which has been transported continually over the Atlantic Ocean by miraculous means. So yeah, yeah, nine months, no problem. All right, yeah, that's good. Well, all right, we'll get started, and then um, yeah, this is some this summer, perhaps. I think we, you you appear or something. Perfect time for speaking of Camino. You'll be you'll be here just in time to get flat plane <laughs> and walk and walk the Camino. Um, okay, so yeah, but other things in in uh, in Switzerland fall. Are you enjoying how is how is fall life in uh, in Switzerland? Are you preparing for Thanksgiving? I assume they're getting excited about this big Turkey Day. They love Turkey Day oh, over yeah. there. I suspect. Yeah. Oh yeah, big 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 Turkey Day fans. Um, I've done a couple of things recently, corn? which have been uh, so someone sent me candy corn actually, Ooh. which was huge. Um, and Australia. Never mind. I'm going to stop mentioning things that I like, or else I'm going to get them from people. Mm, Australian um, licorice. Do it. He- don't. Um, so let's see. Um, yeah. So there was a uh, youth festival. Adoray is the name of this group. Uh, it's like a kind of network of charismatic prayer groups throughout Switzerland. They had a big conference in Zug, which in German means train, but don't train. be mistaken. It's not a train. It's a city. And uh, yeah, so they had like this four day jammer with a lot of time for prayer and talks and yada, yada, and nuts and such. So I was there for that, which was great. Um, I did uh, a, an overnight hiking trip in which I stayed in this like mountain hut with some friends from college. Um, so the one friend married to a man who's a Marine who's assigned in Frankfurt, Germany, and they had a little daughter, uh, which daughter I carried in one of those like carrier backpack things for most of the trip, which is great actually, to have like a little yeah. companion who tried to remove my hat at most opportunities. Um, yeah, so, so I'd say things here are very fall-like. None of that has to do with fall, but those are current events. Mm. And then, yeah, everyone here, especially the French and the Swiss, are counting down to Thanksgiving so they can celebrate America and everything about it they love so much. Yeah, you thought you were getting away from it, but no. Um, Now, the question is, can you find yourself cranberry sauce with the kind of authentic can ridges? But uh, if not, dear listeners, um, send cranberry sauce cans. I'd love to have 2,000 of those appear to Father Gregory so that he has to eat canned cranberry sauce the rest of his, his time finishing the dissertation. Um, that would yeah. be that would be brilliant, yeah. That would be brilliant. Um, but speaking about canned uh, cranberries, you could say, yep. um, Evelyn Waugh. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's like a canned cranberry in the sense that he's a thing. Uh, yeah, so, right. 
that's our topic today is usually <laughs> Father Gregory and I get on and we talk about movie or, you know, we haven't done like, I want you to do an art one, you know, like we should talk about particular art pieces. Edward Hopper. I don't know. Um, yeah, or we could do, or music. We haven't really done music and stuff, but music's hard to do. Anyway, we usually do books or movies, um, the arts, so we get you that sort of thing because we care about both of those things. And one of our favorite authors, um, we don't always agree on our favorite authors, but one of our favorite authors is Evelyn Waugh. And I think that's, unfortunately, that's just what you have to say. If you're like a kind of intellectual nerdy Catholic in the 20th century who reads in English, you just have to like Evelyn Waugh. Um, but that's, you know, some things are just good. If it's good, it's good. You know, steak. It's good. So Evelyn Waugh is uh, a, a, a great Catholic novelist, although not always a Catholic novelist, nor a Catholic. Um, but Father Gregory, you are an Evelyn Waugh fan, as on myself. Um, can you give us a little backstory about who this this dog, this cat, this bird, this whatever is? Mm, yeah. Um, so as is our wont, we do backstories more impressionistically than exactingly because we grow weary of dates and specifics. But Evelyn Waugh is part of this kind of set of um, British Catholic literati during a kind of golden age uh, among British Catholic literati. It's fascinating that. Uh, the novelistic arts, right? So they obviously there's there's great novelists in the German language, you know, whatever Thomas Mann and Goethe, and great novelists in the Spanish language, like you know, you got Cervantes. I mean, it's kind of like wrote the first novel, and I don't know Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and we've been reading Jorge Luis Borges. Um, you have great novelists in many languages, but for whatever reason, there's a kind of preponderance of novels mm -hmm. in the English language. And then when it comes to Catholic novelists, again. Uh, you've got some stuff in France uh, where, especially around the turn of the century, you've got this this literary set with Claudel and Peggy and Léon Blois and Father Patrick recorded. Were you on that episode with him, the French Catholic Spirit? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so. you guys recorded an episode about that maybe like a year ago now. Wow, wild. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there's something about Great Britain uh, and literary Catholics during this these two generations after, you know, kind of like the Oxford movement and uh, the repeal of penal law and yada yada, but it's like this flourishing. And Evelyn Law is one of the contributors, along with people like you know Graham Greene, who we've talked about in the past, or J.R. Tolkien, who we've talked about in the past, or Dorothy Sayers, who we haven't yet talked about. If I could convince somebody to talk about her with me, then we'll make that happen too. Let's do um, it. But yeah, yeah, right. Let's go. Uh, but but he's perhaps known best for uh, his two more kind of sober Catholic novels, which would be Brideshead Revisited. And then if you take the Sword of Honor trilogy together as a, as a single unit, then that would be the second. If you take it separately, well, then you've taken it separately. Uh, so that'd be Men at Arms, Officers and Gentlemen, and Unconditional Surrender. But then most of his other works are satirical. So just kind of rollicking stories of this, that, and the other thing. And then he has an occasional biography mixed in. He wrote one about Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, who's associated mm -hmm. with the discovery of the True Cross, and then uh, Edmund Campion. Um, so those, yeah. those being of a, of a kind of different sort. And he also wrote um, a kind of literary biography of uh, Ronald Knox, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I'm mistaken. I think that's true. Um, yeah, so he, he, and then if you're really into Evelyn Wall, you can read some of his travel journals, which are crazy, wild. Father Edmund McCullough, one of our friends, uh, who's in formation with us, did just that and found great delight in them. Uh, I've only gotten into travel journals briefly, mostly G.K. Chesterton travel journals. And Shocking. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Surprise, surprise. They're, they're not my jam, but there you go. Um, so yeah, that's the basic setting in yeah. life. And uh, quite, quite an interesting fellow. But yeah, what, I mean, yeah, what do you... Well, let's talk... Yeah, let's talk about... So 
I think it's good. I mean, normally we talk about the books, but it's worth talking about the man first and then talking about his books, you could say. Um, because he's, in a sense, he's similar to Graham Greene. He's a, a very powerful, excellent writer, but you don't always get the, I mean, it's not heavy-handed Catholicism. It's not moral Catholicism in a sense, except maybe sometimes by via negativa. Um, so there are really important aspects, and that there's tremendous similarities between these two men in their writing style, you should say. I could say. And somewhat in their life, although Waugh is obviously much more explicitly Catholic in his life, and even in his writings, of course. Um, but let's talk about the first, about this, this, this man himself. You can watch him on, on, on YouTube. You can go and watch an interview, an interview with him from the 60s, late in his life. Um, because he died, he died relatively young. He was uh, a largest man um, who didn't take ridiculously good care of himself. Um, but he he lived a kind of ruckus life first. He'd become an atheist when he was in uh, college, just the start of it, I believe it was, um, and married uh, another a, a woman named Evelyn. So it was he, Evelyn, and she, Evelyn. Um, and that that uh, that marriage ended in a in a separation in 1929 because she was cheating on him. And then in 1930, he converted to, to Catholicism, uh, which was, at the time, again, bombshells for these things. And then he lived for another 30 years, 30-some years, and was, and was writing. But it's not like he was a libertine. There's the phrase is, how, how did this man go from ultra-modern to ultra-montanist? Because when he became Catholic, he became really super-Catholic. Was not was concerned about vulgar, you know, the vernacular liturgy, all this kind of thing. But it wasn't like he became went from a libertine you know, cranky guy to a wonderful, nice Catholic guy. It's he was like a libertine cranky guy to like a cranky Catholic guy. And mm. a lot of people think he was just like the worst person on earth. So if you like, mm. he's just a really nasty guy. So one reflection of, so reflecting the conversion, but one reflection is what to make of a guy who the conversion process and the grace involved there still makes him kind of cranky, or at least doesn't remove crankiness. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously people have their go-to saints whereby to explain this phenomenon. But I think that grace interfaces with nature. It interfaces with our temperament. And the expectation isn't that grace would radically overhaul our nature such that we're irrecognizable to those who knew us before, right? That whereas formerly we would have sworn copiously and, you know, drank, you know, uh, whatever the opposite of soberly and yada, yada, and thus and such. And then we become like perfect angels. I mean, it typically just doesn't happen like that. One, grace takes hold of a human life by stages, often slowly. And there's a kind of organic development to it. But also the person remains recognizable. So grace, you know, it doesn't destroy nature. It, it elevates it. It heals it. And you become more so yourself. Thomas Merton says the saint becomes himself. And I think that, yeah, I mean... Even Lenoir was a crank. You, you, you hear a couple of stories, where, there are tons of them, but um, I've heard one where he was walking with uh, a friend of his, somebody came up who recognized him, said some gushy things about how much she appreciated his literary work, and then he just told this woman off and she left dissolved in tears. And the man who had been accompanying him on his walk, on his jaunt, said, like, don't you call yourself a Christian? Like, that behavior cannot be described in any way, shape, or form as Christian behavior. And he says, you know, but for the grace of God, I would have been twice as savage to her. What's that wonderful? It, it, it's like uh, there's it, it, people have read C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. I think at some point he asks the question like, well, you know, Mrs. Bates is so priggish and she's a Christian. Um, but Dick Firkin, you know, he's he's the atheist and he's just a nice. He's a nice guy. And she uh, and he and he says, like, you can't judge this. You have to ask a question like, what would Miss Bates be like if she wasn't a Christian? And what would Dick Firkin be like if he was a Christian? 
So yeah, that's it. You, you can't measure against other people per se, given the natures that you have. But what whether this increase, and then we could say like, well, actually, you know, he's kind of nastier guy after he's got. Well, whatever. There's just it's complicated. Um, but I think, but if you watch the interviews, you get a sense of he's not that. He's not. He wasn't always a horrible person, right? Uh, he was he, but he he had a particular shtick he did, and he cared about things. Um, and he, interestingly enough, um, he cared about he cared about the moral life. But he didn't think his art was in charge of, of, of proclaiming that explicitly. And this is an interesting. Someone, an interview asked him on point, "What's your, you know, now that you're Catholic uh, and you're doing these Catholic novels, like, are you just trying to browbeat people into a particular? What's your moral? Like, why are you writing these books? Are you trying to get us to convert or this sort of thing?" And he says, "I don't have a point. It's not like that's, in a sense, he's saying my art is descriptive. It's not normative. He's not prescribing mm. things." He's just he's just describing things the best he can. He's saying like I'm going to write the best sentences I possibly can. That's all I care about. If they happen to inspire people to goodness, that's in a sense accidental to them. Now, of course, it's related since the good and the true and the beautiful we think are all connected. You new sort of transcendentals, but it's not like he doesn't have a moral project that then he wraps in a story and then publishes that. It's more like he has a story. And then it turns out, since it's a good story, it has a nice lesson to it that you can take from it. But that's, in a sense, and I think that's, for Dominicans, that just warms the cockles of our hearts. Isn't that like a ventricle or something? Maybe the left or the aorta? I don't know. Um, it's somewhere over here. Because we're yep. just not, you know, we we don't brow. I, I, don't, I like to think Dominicans don't generally browbeat, moralize kind of stuff. We just present truth, and turns out truth is also good, and so it will draw one. And so he's... He, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I particularly enjoy him. I don't know if that, if that, does that sound, I mean, does it, his art form as a descriptive event that becomes moralizing by not moralizing. Yeah. I mean, one of my go-to ways by which to explain what you just described excellently is kind of authorial patience. I think that um, you have to be patient given the confines or given the limits or given the context of your art form. So like, just as in a, you know, a human relationship, if you just lead with like very apologetic or very polemic approaches to human interaction, you're going to turn people off because it's often in the context of a friendship, you know, that somebody will be, I don't know, inspired to or have the question provoked concerning the faith. You know, it's not to say that we like befriend people so as to convert them, but in a certain sense, you know, like if you're, if you're genuine, if you're sincere, if you're in friendships, if you, if you really love another human being, then oftentimes that's a commendation of your faith. And then it ends up being that the person may be led or drawn to embrace it him or herself. Um, and so we, we exhibit a kind of patience in our relationships, but so too of the author. I think that, you know, if you're writing a short story, you have to do a certain thing in 15 pages. But if you're writing a novel, you got, you got time to portray human realities and you don't have to make, you know, every page about the point in the sense that like you skip over character development, you skipped over plot subtlety, you skip over you know, some more complex themes, which we, which would like kind of naturally emerge from human interaction, just to say like, do this, do that, do this, do that, because it comes out being impatient and as a result of which kind of crass. And so I think that he's, he's patient with his art form. And I think that that certainly commends him as an author. Well, speaking of, um, we want to look into this exactly and see how it works out. I think we're going to discuss in the next, next half here, we're going to do Brideshead Revisited, of course, because I assume if you're listening to this episode and you have, know anything about Evelyn Waugh, um, is that he wrote Brides Had Revisited and did not act in the movie uh, for BBC. There's two versions of that, by the way. Only watch the BBC one. Um, and then uh, and then we'll probably do Sort of Honor Trilogy, since that's uh, another that's another big Catholic novel was mentioned. So stick with us. We're going to come back and talk about Evelyn Waugh and the Catholic novel and his 
view of grace and how it works out. So we'll be right back. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. And we are back. And you are listening to Godsplaining with Father Bonaventure and Father Gregory Pine. It's the two of us who are talking about something arts-related and something we've read, most likely or watched. Um, not something we've smelled. We haven't done those yet. Um, <laughs> Smell-splaining? Smell-splaining or something, yeah. We've just done, like, <laughs> eyes and listening and stuff. But, yeah, talking about our favorite scents, maybe Yankee Candle, um, mm. you know, an opportunity to do some uh, product plugging for different scents and such. We could look at... Anyway, we're talking about Evelyn Waugh, and we talked a little... We said his life, and he's a, a, one of those... In that English Catholic conversion period, very, you know, very intelligent, well-read, well, well good writer, and has a particular way of proposing Catholicism, and we ended with a talk, but it's not really moralistic, because you might, you'll read, for instance, Brideshead Revisited, um, which he wrote is, is a Catholic novel, and he explains it when you asked him, when he asked what he was about, he says, the, no- the novel deals with what is theologically termed the operation of grace, that is to say, the unmerited and unilateral act of God, by which, act of love, by which God continually calls souls to himself. And you could read Brideshead or watch the BBC movies, which are basically the same script, and think it seems like it's not about grace, but about a man and a teddy bear, and perhaps some questionable relations between two men, you know, as my brother calls it, a bit of buggery. Um, But that's not what it's really about. So, Father Gregor, you want to... How to explain this? What is this novel about, and what what is after the grace? And then let's talk about that first, and then move on to sort Sort of Honor. Yeah. I mean, so the book's about people and about the kind of subtle or nuanced interactions amongst people. But I think that a theme that arises from reading the book is the interrelatedness of love. So perhaps, listeners, you've, you've read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Certainly, if you want to really enrich the reading of that book, read it with Surprised by Joy, which is the story of his conversion. And then mm-hmm. Till We Have Faces, all of which were written about the same time and touch on similar well, themes. Well, don't read that book. Yeah. Well, Father Bonaventure doesn't like that one. I do. I mean, <laughs> just something else we differ on. Um, but um, I think in Brideshead Revisited, you see the interrelatedness of friendship, you know, like erotic or romantic mm-hmm. love, and then, you know, agapetic love or caritative love or love of God, however you describe it. And it's not, it's not just like a stepwise function, like, once you get to 100% friendship points, then you rise Boom. to the ranks of romantic love. And then once... No, it's not like that at all. It's just to say that like love and a life dedicated or devoted to love will often end up entailing you in relationships which call you to higher loves. So, you know, Charles Ryder, you know, befriends Sebastian Flight. He's this weird dude who likes, I don't know, sipping wine under a tree and burying things at the base of it so that he would always know that there he had a happy memory. And like, you know, dithers about with his teddy bear Aloysius. But it ends up that through Sebastian, he meets Julia. And although Julia is married, he ends up having an affair with Julia. And then through both of them, he meets the family. And that family is so Christ-haunted that he ends up meeting the Lord in a really strange way. And it's just like, it's not to say like thematically, like the first part of the book is about, and the middle part of the book is about, and the last part of the book about it. It's just to say that once you find yourself kind of caught in the grip of love, if you go about it in a way that's at the very least open to the prospect of basic things, you know, at the start, like responsibility or genuine communion, you find yourself called up into things which are of a higher sort. And then, you know, 
you might be in such a position as to be well disposed to the inbreaking of grace. That's not to say that by nature you merit grace. For those of us who are sensitive to such distinctions, fear not. But I think that the story is really, again, very, very artful in the way in which it portrays the interrelatedness of love. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I like that, that kind of love has this diffusion, so love bleeds over. If you open yourself up to love, so um, Charles Ryder, the kind of main character, he's telling the story, it first opens, Sebastian is in a sense the first person opens him up to love, but once he's opened up to love here in this particular way, as you say, in the friendship love, it either goes to erotic love or it's going to move to agapeic love or something, so move to charity. So you, once you open yourself up to true love in one aspect, in a sense, bleeds over into the other ones and naturally keeps going. I think that's right. I think the other part that's that's fascinating, that's beautiful to me, and that mentions about grace, is there's a sort of indomitability to it that, in a sense, the the family, so the flight family, the March, which the Marchmain Manor, uh, Brideshead is is there, uh, is there is the manor. Um, they they can't escape their Catholicism. So yeah. it's, and it's, ex- and it's extremely painful because it's, this is in Catholicism at time, you know, um, uh, this is again set in the early 20th century. Uh, no, not all the English people are particularly inclined to Catholicism. And so they're stuck with this. It's, it's given to them just like in the way that baptism, for instance, like you are, well, if you're baptized as an infant, you have been given something that you didn't particularly choose, but there's no way around it. And what's fascinating is um, he's able to, in this story, tell the indomitability, indomitability of grace without making it so obvious that this is what's going to happen or if this is what's it about. You realize as you're going along, because Charles also realizes that he's been caught in this love leading to this grace, um, that he can't avoid. And the characters, each one of them in the family, uh, are coming to this decision, some very quickly, of course, um, the Cordelia, the sisters, no problem with, with, with being Catholic and being in this family and living in a particular way. Um, and others very reluctantly, but everyone is being drawn into the sacramental life and the life of grace, sometimes against their, their, their desires, you could even say. But still, and to put it this way, it's not mechanical. It's the grace that frees one to respond so that even those who are kicking and screaming, in a sense, have moments of, of, being, of responding to the grace but you get the whole sense of that the response is built on deeper uh, pulling of this deep of this commitment already, and I think that's a beautiful model of how how grace works in family and how grace works in one's life is that you stumble upon it or you're you're inserted into it, and you have to live it out, and you don't have a choice. Like it's it, you wouldn't be who you were if you didn't live it out in this way, and that's what whether you come as a conversion, which Charles Ryder does. Um, and has to live this because he's been presented with it, even though he doesn't really want to, but he chooses to. Um, or if you when this Catholic family, you can't escape it. You can't run, no matter how t- far you try to run away from it, you can't. Sebastian or Julia in this sort of way. So that, that indomitability of grace, uh, very much like Graham Greene's kind of work where you can't, the main characters can't escape graces no matter how hard they try. That sort of thing. That's what, that strikes me the operative principles of grace, such that even though you have cooperative moments of it, it's still undergirded by this continual operation that's working. Yeah. No, it's each of the members of that family, six in number, mom, dad, four kids, have their strange relationship with the Lord, with the faith, with the fact of their Catholicism. And some are, you know, seemingly crushed by it. Others are liberated by it. But each of them ends up kind of being reconciled to it in a certain sense. I think it's the mother Mm -hmm. who ends up having the greatest difficulty, but 
you know, there's that iconic scene in which the father, after a long, long, you know, sojourn in Italy with his mistress, you know, ends up coming back to the house and, you know, receiving the sacraments at the end. But then, like, Cordelia is the kind of pure of heart. She's a type, but she has her own trials that she has to undergo. And mm -hmm. Bridie's kind of stodgy, and it's unclear whether he has a heart. But, you know, like, he too is, is faith with a choice and his marriage of, a, of an older, weirder woman. Uh, but then, you know, the, the two at the center are Sebastian, right, who, like, never grows out of his boyish fancies, but then mm -hmm. ends up, like, expressing his connection to the faith by, like, living as a kind of porter of a monastery in northern Africa and taking care of another human being as like the small expression of mercy of which he himself is capable. Because I think in a certain sense, you know, like as a baptized Catholic, we're conscious of the fact that we have both rights and duties. And sometimes mm -hmm. the duties are enough to terrify us or to kind of undo us. You know, it's the people who, who like join the Jesuit volunteer corps speak about being ruined for life. Once you've had this experience, you know, of service of the material poor, it's, it's like kind of hard to go back to normal life. It's kind of hard to unsee what you've seen or undo what you've done. Not mm. that you would want to, but, you know, it really marks you. And I think that such is true of all Catholics. You know, we're, we're marked by a character at baptism, and that has a claim on us. And you see that that claim can liberate or that claim can crush if it's something that proves too weighty at certain moments in a life. And yeah, and then Julia, you know, the fact of her marriage and that she hates the man with whom she is married, but she recognizes the fact that she's in a state of sin. And then that little like apostrophe to sin when she's talking to Charles at the, at the fountain, you realize how real for her, like how metaphysically thick mm -hmm. um, is, is the grace which she has been fleeing or the grace which she has rejected and knows need to be rekindled, even in a broken relationship. And I think that, yeah, like you said, it's real right? It's not made up. Some things are, and some things aren't. And the only way through, especially for a Catholic who has been soaked or saturated in this metaphysical like vision, is to embrace the things that are and to flee the things that aren't, or stop pretending as if it were other than it is, you know? And, and I, I wonder, think that I, is great. I wonder if, and I wonder if I want to get to sort, sort of honor for a second, but I wonder if it's not also helpful in thinking about Catholicism moving forward. Um, because there are a lot of people in our country that are, are, are baptized in Christianity in general, but ha haven't been taught or haven't been living it, and they were that might have to come to grace in not as manifestly openly, but come in these ways, like the realization that deep down this is who you are, and that you will reconcile that with a broken life, and that those of us who have been graced to be protected from from those things will be there to hopefully usher and welcome welcome those people back in whatever last moments or whatever moments they are, such that they can re, re, reattach themselves to God as they're supposed to. Um, so maybe prophetic, maybe some marching orders there or something, or a vision. Um, let's We've got a few more minutes left. Let's talk about um, his Sword of Honor trilogy. This is, again, three books. You can buy them in one volume, or he, he took out some lines. So if you're really a purist about this, you should buy them in the three individual ones. But um, he did, at the end of his life, compile them together and took out what he thought were bad lines or things that didn't matter. Um, and and this is a has an autobiographical feeling as well because it's 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 about a it's about the, the war uh, World War Two and it's about his and and he he obviously served in the war as well. So what what are the in the last couple minutes here we've got um, what are the themes that you get from this this Catholic novel again about a an officer in the war? Yeah, I mean one of the things that's most remarkable about the book is that it's you know putatively a war story. I mean sword features prominently in the title. And all of the subtitles or all of the titles of the three composing works, you know, are belligerent. Um, but uh, it's not about war, right? It's really about what 
what becomes of a human heart posed with the prospect of war or in the wake of war, and oftentimes when the experience of that war is chaotic or confused or maybe even less gloriously boring, right, or monotonous. Um, and the main character's name's Guy Crouchback, and, which is a kind of, you know, like trope for a fallen everyman. His name is Guy, right, mm -hmm. Crouchback. And, <laughs> and there's similar themes there with interrelated loves. So, you know, he's got this good friend, Apthorpe, and he's married but separated, but then ends up, like, trying to rekindle the flame with or even seduce his wife. Again, because he's marked by his Catholicism, and he knows that there's only one person in the world with whom he can licitly have sexual relations, <laughs> mm -hmm. even though he's a strange, it's just like the metaphysical vision is, is bizarro, but you know, it kind of acclimates you to a reality. And then, yeah, I mean, it tells the story eventually of his kind of coming back to faith and then giving of his life in a kind of sacrifice in the midst of, you know, the, the, the falling of bombs or the blitz or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot like Brideshead thematically. It takes place in a different theater. Um, it, draws on, it draws on different characters and settings. It's a lot longer, right? And as a result mm -hmm. of which, it can afford to be a little more meandering, um, right? Uh, but yeah, yeah, I don't know if, if, you have, uh, if you have impressions from what you've heard said or what you've heard tell. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just um, I'm struck by, in all of his works, the... the the kind of tragic beauty, you know, because we, we get, there's a way in which you can portray tragedy uh, as beautiful, just qua tragedy. But I think he portrays tragedy qua be beautiful, qua beautiful, if I can make that distinction. So we get, you know, we, we get kind of depressed and we think modern world and all this kind of stuff. And we think, okay, well, it's just, you know, looking at car accidents and we can, it's just great to see things collapse. And then we think, well, no, the, you know, we want to see good moral tales. Like there's this dialectic between like, you know, nice, nice moral tales where everyone feels good about everything. And then it's like, oh no, I really like the, the deep tragedy ones that don't have good endings, this sort of thing, right? So watch Arlington Road if you want to see this. It's hard to imagine movies without bad, good endings. But so you could just focus on the kind of tragic aspects and take solace in the fact that yeah, everything's bad and whatever. But I don't get a sense that Wah does. Wah has the tragedy, which is, as you say, the real. Like, it's just realistic. Here it is. Welcome to sin. An Augustinian vision, vision, we could say. Right? This isn't a happy, clappy, Thomist kind of vision of things. Well, even that's probably not fair. Um, but uh, it still turns to be beautiful. But because it's, it's pointing to this other thing, through sacrifice, through realization, um, those things. And that's, that's just, I think that's, that strikes me as being very true to life and very helpful. Um, for those who don't make it through life as easily as others do. Um, and that reminder that grace is still there for people, even amidst uh, terrifying, debilitating circumstances, and that no one's ever too far out because it's the operations of God who is, is the operator of grace and not, not our, ourselves. You could say we only respond, and sometimes very lately. So that's, I, I do, I love that about Wah. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so I think that's good enough for now. Uh, we've been talking about Evelyn Waugh. I encourage you to, if you have not read Brideshead, you probably should. You really should. Or watch the BBC with, uh, with um, Anthony Andrews. Oh, we didn't talk about, uh, oh yeah, shoot, my favorite character's in there. But um, anyway, there's just a lot to say about Brideshead. If you haven't seen it, do, do watch it or read it. Um, it the book is excellent. Uh, it's really fantastic. Uh, but also, if you've watched us before and you like us, then uh, go ahead and keep liking us on social media. Do all that stuff. Patreon viewers, thank you very much for supporting us. Your, your 
Your assistance gives us better equipment, uh, allows us to pay Katie Parker, our assistant, allows us to bring more content. Just a reminder, we have these normal episodes, and, uh, and then we also have two times a month we have a guest explaining kind of thing, uh, and then we have on the other two two Fridays of a month, uh, we have live explaining. That's going to change a little bit as Advent approaches, because we've got a Saturday kind of Lexio, as you know, uh, uh, the Friars sit down and some of the Friars sit down and talk through the readings. But our consistent plan will be guest explaining twice a, twice a month, live explaining twice a month, and then the weekly the weekly show. So um, anything else, Father Greg, you want to add to that? No, that's great. All right. I'm getting better a little bit at this, although you notice I don't remember whether it was the first and third, and which one was which, but that's all right. That that's all right. So in any case, um, we'll be praying for you. You pray for us, and we wish you all a, a, a wonderful fall and a chance to read some great literature, especially the Catholic novels of Evelyn Waugh. So signing off for Godsplaining. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.